Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. To me, it's not a failure. If we, if we look about, about what happened in the industry, we've been hearing projects of potential breakaway leagues ever since I was probably a teenager. Last year, it was the first time... Andrea Agnelli was in London earlier this year in late winter. He spoke publicly in the English capital for the first time since the Super League came apart at the seams. And remarkably, he flatly refused to accept that the project had been a failure. We know the drill for prominent public figures in all walks of life today. Never apologise, never explain. This was beyond that though, a denial of what we'd all seen with our own eyes and heard with our own ears. It never was quite unanimous. Germany and France's big boys weren't keen, and one giant in particular actually did quite well out of the ESL's spectacular crash and burn. Yet Agnelli and Florentino Perez are still bold in fighting their corner, and their lawyers are still working. So what next? Is this story going to end in fans' forums, in the boardroom, or in the courtroom? And what does football really mean to us in 2022, 12 months on? This is the third and final part of Back From The Brink. I think when you look at the precedence of the European Court of um, Justice, especially the European Court of First Instance, practices of European Commission, old English court decisions, then it's quite clear that um, it will be in favour of the Super League. In the coming months, the European Court of Justice is due to decide whether the Super League is protected by EU law and, by extension, whether UEFA have an unfair monopoly over European football. It will be hugely significant, and Mark Ort only sees it going one way. Mark is a leading sports competition lawyer. He was keen to stress that his work involves fighting against these federations, like UEFA or FIFA, on behalf of athletes and other parties. Back in episode one, we mentioned the 1998 Super League attempt, where Italian group media partners offered top European clubs 750 million euros. Although it never got off the ground, Mark argued that this competition actually forced UEFA to improve their own product. To suppress that competition would be unlawful. And it became quite clear with the discussion of the European Commission, because there was a European Commission case, that such threats of a monopolistic organisation which threatens anyone who wants to take part in another competition is, plainly speaking, an abuse of a dominant position and therefore prohibited. And to be honest, it was not so interesting for the fans. Um, they did ha not have that such high um, income from TV money because people were not really interested in watching Champions League games. The national leagues had much, much more interest with the fans than the um, European games by that time. And media partner gave some incentive for the clubs. I mean, clearly speaking, the idea behind was that clubs should earn more money, but the idea was also to make the uh, European games more interesting for fans and in order to get more audience and sure to get more money and the share of the clubs should be higher. And a number of the points proposed by that project, Gandalf, Media Partner International, however you want to call it, was later um, put into reality by UEFA. So they needed that input from a competitor or potential competitor, how we call it, and then they improved their product because by now and after that, 
they introduced a lot of changes and um, European Champions League became much more interesting for fans uh, to watch, much more audience, and the games became much more interesting in the afterwards. So that potential competition was, in the end, very productive for the whole product. UEFA aren't blind to clubs' ambitions, even if the timing of the Super League's announcement did take them by surprise. They've generally been well prepared for such events in the past. This time, maybe not so much. UEFA has a has had a perfect competition lawyer, one of the best, maybe the best competition lawyer, uh, Alistair Bell. Um, I think he's now working for FIFA, but they are quite aware of the risks involved in competition law. And that is what I've seen from a number of cases, that they are quite aware that competition law is different to a number of other legal fields. And when I looked at what UEFA representatives' um, statements were short after and before the Super League, I didn't get the impression that there were that they had been nicely prepared for that. There were like heroic figures that emerged for that moment, but these aren't heroes, I don't think. Like you know, I think UEFA got a lot of credit for what it did, but again, there's certain questions of UEFA to be asked. Here's Tarek Panja, a journalist with the New York Times, who helped break the Super League story. When we spoke to him, it was clear he felt something needs to change at the very top to stop clubs feeling like this would be a possibility in the future. These are the people who are the the trustees, the people who look after the stewards of the game, right? So that, what, what have they done that have created a situation where this, this type of thing was is possible? What can be done in order for this not to happen as well? Are they looking after the game correctly? The reaction was, was strong, was decisive. And as a fan organisation... Ronan Evan, Executive Director of Football Supporters Europe, is familiar with UEFA's workings as much as anyone. He and others met with Alexander Cheferin in the days after the Super League announcement and in the throes of crisis, there really was meaningful dialogue. But we don't want less UEFA, we want more, a more powerful, a stronger UEFA that plays its role as, as regulator within the game, taking into account the... Uh, the opinions and interests of every stakeholder. But 12 months on, is Ronan still satisfied? UFA kept their word in the, in, in the sense that we are increasingly in, in consulted and included into, into operations and decisions that have to do with, with the way fans experience the game. And that's progress. There's also a better acknowledgement of, of fans' rights in general and, and our right to attend the match in you know in a safe and welcoming environment and to have our rights respected so there is certainly progress there nevertheless there's still some work to do in terms of addressing the structural issues that led to the to to the to the launch of the super league which is uh, clubs a number of clubs are too powerful they have too much power within european football and uh, and ufa in our opinion, at this stage, still hasn't uh, addressed properly the, the, the lack of competitive balance within the games. Chers supporters, c'est l'une des icônes mondiales, l'un des plus grands joueurs de l'histoire du football, qui nous fait l'honneur de revêtir le maillot parisien. If there's a club symbolic of football's modern excesses and successes, as well as occasionally eliciting the Schadenfreude of others, is Paris Saint-Germain. It might not have done so at the time, but Qatar's takeover of the club in 2011 is now prompting questions about football's obsession with money, no matter where it's coming from. Surely a club dripping with the spoils of excess would have jumped at the chance of guaranteed billions and box office fixtures. Certain 
cynics or critics of PSG probably would have expected them to have uh, you know, grabbed the, the Super League opportunity with both hands. Or perhaps not. This is Jonathan Johnson, French football correspondent for CBS Sports. He explains that PSG's willingness to endear themselves to the current powers that be was an even bigger attraction than the prospect of a Super League. PSG, after their early tangles with UEFA, certainly over financial fair play, have become more savvy uh, legally to, to, to the realities and the ramifications of, of, of these sorts of major changes. And I think they saw the opportunity to strengthen their hand uh, within UEFA so that they are not made to feel sort of, uh, you know, almost like as, uh, as, a, as a lesser part uh, of, uh, you know, European football going forward. Because up until then, there was definitely a feeling that PSG was sort of in that uh, second bracket, you know, the ones that were not necessarily put first, but were then considered afterwards. Uh, and I think that the, the feeling is that, uh, you know, playing the Super League uh, crisis the way that they did, uh, you know, certainly brought them out in a much better, much more favourable, much stronger position, something that they didn't expect uh, to present itself even sort of a week, 10 days before it actually happened. PSG are already comfortably the biggest club in Liga. They've won seven of the last nine French titles and their domestic titles are sometimes treated as an underwhelming detail, far behind the ultimate aim of the Champions League. But they're not immune to the problems of football post-pandemic. Maybe they need strong competitors after all. I mean, obviously, PSG, you know, are sort of in their own world, uh, you know, with regards to the rest of their their domestic competitors. But that's not to say that PSG weren't impacted by COVID-19 and the absolutely catastrophic handling of the Media Pro TV rights deal by the LFP. Now, that has created a lot of financial pressure on French football as a whole, as a collective. And we're only seeing that be addressed now. Uh, we've got CBC, who obviously have already... Um, you know, got that deal in place with La Liga, who are also going to be entering into the Ligue 1 sphere or the, the Ligue 1 and Ligue 2 spheres because it's uh, under the LFP umbrella, which means all of the professional clubs within France. So there is quite clearly, uh, you know, some sort of financial pressure uh, there, certainly for, for PSG in a season like this, where they've dropped out of the Champions League early. So there's a bit of a shortfall in the money that they expected to come in. It's vital for PSG that they have some of these rivals and that these rivals you know, are regularly playing to the best of their ability because we saw Monaco beat them to the title back in 2016-17. We've seen Marseille flirt with potentially being uh, title contenders and getting themselves back in the Champions League. But until these big established squads, uh, you know, clubs are capable uh, of juggling the, the domestic and continental um, duties and, you know, giving PSG a strong run for their money, uh, it's going to be difficult to sell, uh, you know, Ligue 1 as a more attractive league than their top five rivals without the star power that PSG boasts with your Messi's, with your Neymar's, uh, with your Mbappe's. There is also a school of thought in, in France that, you know, we might see uh, PSG's owners' uh, thinking change uh, on the Super League should uh, there be a proposal made after the World Cup at the end of this year. We'll have to wait and see what happens on that front. Uh, there's also uh, the interesting subplot with part of this restructuring of French football that, uh, you know, BN Sport and Canal Plus uh, will be in court uh, later this year, um, you know, to, to hash out the the final details over what happened, uh, you know, when COVID hit just before Media Pro came into play uh, and, you know, should be in suddenly vacate the market, uh, you know, then that obviously leaves fewer ties 
uh, for PSG's owners to consider, uh, you know, if, if a more solid Super League proposal is made in the future. Across the border in Germany, there is, of course, another giant of European football whose absence from the European Super League project presented a gaping rift in it from the start. Bayern Munich announced their rebuttal from the get-go. But their and Dortmund's circumstances are very different to Paris Saint-Germain's. The Bundesliga's 50 plus 1 model is the first obstacle. As the dust settled on the Super League in England, this model was held up as the panacea for the greed that had reared its ugly head. But the reality is not as simple as that. Here's German football journalist Stefan Ersfeld. The German model is uh, still solid, not pretty solid. Um, well, we we have those four clubs acting outside the uh, famous 50 plus one rule, uh, which means uh, the club will have to hold uh, more than 50% of the shares of the club. Uh, we have Hoffenheim, we have uh, Bayer Leverkusen, VfL Wolfsburg and Leipzig. So um, the 50 plus one is no longer... Um, well. The main thing in German football, but what we still have us is we we are a community-based um, system, whereas um, even a, a super club like Bayern Munich, uh, who ha- they have offices in New York, they have office in uh, offices in Asia, um, they still know that they will only uh, be able to function if they keep the fan base in their home city. So um, the ultras you would see on the uh, stands at the Allianz Arena. Um, are the heart of the club. And they make their voices heard. Last March, Bayern's fan group Club Number 12 joined forces with Dortmund's supporters' organisation. They demanded that clubs not competing in Europe receive 50% of revenue from the three competitions. Under UEFA's latest reforms, this so-called solidarity pot is just 4%. These are fans who care about the sustainability of the game, sometimes over and above their own club's interests. Stefan also points out that you just need to look at Bayern's board as well. Last summer, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge, who played at Bayern for a decade in the 70s and 80s, retired as CEO and handed the reins to who? Oliver Kahn, the legendary Bayern goalkeeper who was between the sticks for the club for 14 years. These are people who've been inside the club for generations and who won Bundesliga titles and European Cups. Even if their members couldn't stop them, their principals would. Of course, all of this should come with the caveat that things can change. Bayern have explored joining a Super League in the past. Some are continuing to fight its cause more openly. The most significant of those is Juventus president, Andrea Agnelli. To get more insight into the perception of him in his native league and country, I went for a walk near our studios in North London with Italian football expert and member of this parish, Nicky Bandini. So Nicky, how has the image of Andrea Agnelli changed, if at all, since he's been so prominent in the European Super League project? Italy's football politics have always been complicated and have always been fractious and have always had warring factions. and I think you would have said before all this kicked off, for instance, that you had different power bases and Claudio Latito at Lazio is sort of his own power base and, and generally at war with everyone. And 
sure, this might be another reason he's got now to, to point at Danielle and say, you did this, why do I have to listen to you? But it's it's not like that's new necessarily. Everyone who isn't Juventus has always enjoyed Juventus failing. That's, that's something that's been there. Um, forever and um, well certainly for, 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 for decades and decades and decades um, and um, Agnelli's just in some regards sort of the, the latest um, the latest face of that What has been very important about the proposal that has been put on the table is that it has made everybody engaged that there is a requirement for change and he's dragged them up the Deloitte Money League to sort of around the ninth or tenth spot in Europe, um, and that's the biggest club in Italy. You know, so that's that's something you think, gosh, it's only ninth or tenth in Europe, but that's where he got them to. And he's found this this hard ceiling of the limits of of what he can do, and he from that has drawn the conclusion that the only way to make things better is to create this European Super League that guarantees that there will be clubs in countries outside of, I mean, bluntly, it's outside of England, where the Premier League revenues have come up so, so much that it's very hard for clubs in other countries to compete. Sure, PSG can get impossibly wealthy owners and that can fix the problem for them. But in terms of actual revenue, it's, it's I suppose, I guess, organic revenue that isn't just provided by a sponsor who happens to be part of the state that you represent. Um, it, it's very hard for clubs to compete with the Premier League now. From Agnelli's perspective, is part of it we we can talk about um the limitations as you, as you talked about it um in, in terms of what there is in the, in the in the domestic market and it's definitely something that Bayern, a club that have been often compared with juventus in terms of the european stature they've often been compared do we think that the natural ceiling is a huge part of what's motivated that or is there some sort of recognition either from Agnelli and Juventus or from elsewhere in Italy, that some of those are self-imposed restrictions. Like they, they chose to make the Juventus stadium the size that it is rather than bigger, for example. And that thing that we're talking about, about the contracts, because they do have a horrendous wage bill and they've, they've struggled to effectively rebuild in the last five years because of that. Yeah, Juventus have made some very poor decisions, I think, in the last two or three years when it comes to recruitment and, and player wages. I think that's, that's undeniable. Um, I don't think that one... Um, I don't think that you can fully separate one from the other. The, the, the hard ceiling is there, and I think it's interesting that Bayern have the same issue but also didn't come to the conclusion that the Super League was necessarily the, the answer to all their problems. Um, I, I think that... What is sort of interesting, actually, when you talked about Schadenfreude before and, and, and whether um, other people in Italy sort of are, are enjoying that, that Agnelli got this so wrong, I think, again, I, I don't want to be an Agnelli apologist because I completely disagree with his conclusions, but I think if you want to be sort of trying to see Agnelli's perspective, you can also listen to other things he's said in the last few years about how he wanted to see... Roma and Milan and Inter and Rome particularly when they were trying to build a stadium he wanted to see them succeed he wanted to see them come up because he wanted the rising tide that lifts all boats mm. and I think he, he genuinely has wanted that for Italian football for other clubs to do what Juventus did to get their own stadium to get their houses in order to, to, to make decisions that allowed them to become more profitable because that would help everyone within the context and I do think that part of this Super League project is a frustration with um not just Italian sporting culture, frankly, but Italian um, 
governmental culture and and political culture that stops a lot of these projects getting done and wanting to be able to sort of almost remove himself and his club from that context a little bit um that doesn't mean that the solution is not extraordinarily arrogant because i think it is and i think it's wrong but i think that that is nevertheless a genuine motivation i don't think that that is sort of false for Agnelli, then, it was a mixture of pride, money, a capitalist two fingers up to Italy's political class. Barcelona's motive is more obvious, plain desperation in the face of financial catastrophe. And what about Real Madrid? Real Madrid is, is, a, is a different animal. It sees itself as in a league of one globally. There is nothing. It's Real Madrid and, and that's football, as far as, as they're concerned. There is this privacy they have this feeling of superiority that Real Madrid is if they could play themselves every week they would love that probably because there is a certain haughtiness to to to, to Real Madrid but the question I keep coming back to is why would the Premier League clubs like Manchester City for example with their existing financial advantages get involved here's Melissa Reddy again the Premier League clubs have been so annoyed at Barcelona and Real Madrid for you know picking off their best players and for creating basically their own market in in its own and their own like barcelona in terms of tourism and uh you know like their stadium tour and stuff used to absolutely rake in cash that even united as gigantic as they are could never dream of <laughs> and the premier league clubs have been waiting to kick those two and then when they're finally on their knees they're like, oh, hang on, yeah, we'll come and join this ridiculous league and make you guys strong again. Wild. The financial gap between the Premier League and the rest of the European leagues has been growing for years. We've known that. But the pandemic accelerated that at an alarming rate. Just weeks after the immediate threat of the Super League passed, a UEFA report showed that English clubs were responsible for a staggering 43% of global transfer activity in the summer of 2020. Fast forward to February of this year and another report was out. The current top flight teams in England have spent six times more than Serie A, 10 times more than La Liga clubs and 12 times more than the Bundesliga. Juventus and Real Madrid and Barcelona, they're facing a, a sort of much more precarious financial future. Martin Ziegler points to this inequality as well. The Premier League clubs, you know, their overseas TV money has just soared despite the pandemic. They've had guarantee of saving again for the domestic rights. So they, you know, they, they're getting £10.5 billion over the, the next three years. The combined revenue of all 20 Premier League clubs is projected to be around €6.1 billion Euros in the 2021-22 season, by the way. Double that of their Spanish and German counterparts. The losses suffered by the, the, the big clubs in Spain and Italy have been huge and they haven't got that sort of future income. They, so they're looking at the Premier League clubs and thinking, my God, you know, how are we going to get back on their level? This question has already shaped the recent history of European football and you can bet it's going to shape its future too. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. There was one more person I wanted to speak to, someone a little closer to home. Pete Donaldson has always, well, worn his heart on his sleeve when it comes to football's brazen money-making schemes. Last October saw the ownership of his club, Newcastle United, change hands, sold by Mike Ashley to the Saudi Public Investment Fund. So it's fair to say Pete has been thinking a lot about football's relationship with money, its owners and where fans can fit it in between. So we sat down together in the office canteen one morning. I... You know, I talk a good game on the ramble about my, you know, left-wing sensibilities and, my, you know, I like to think I, I, I play with a fairly straight bat on that. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, like, when the Premier League sort of came in, when the Champions League came in, sort of in the early mid-90s, um, everything changed. You know, it's not like I wasn't supporting a club that wasn't the richest in the league back in the day. It was in, you mm. know, Sir John Hall had all the money in the world. Um, Jack I've Walker, been to level you know. seven at St James. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But you know, we we had a lot of money. You know, you don't assemble a team with like Les Ferdinand, Alan Shearer, and Fastino Spree and David Ginola in the side uh, if you're not really, really bloody minted. So we've been here before when Newcastle United. It was a, a, a rigged game to a certain extent when, when I first started watching uh, Newcastle. So I'm not going to shy away from that. But you know, I was like to think I've to done my time. Of, was, it, was it easier to put out of your mind before? Like, like now, now you have to. Like I mean, as, as part of your job, you, you have to assess. You know, what's right for the game. If that's. I mean, not, not a bit I mean, cloying. I mean, look, you, you go high up a, a billionaire's uh, a, a business, you'll find uh, some pretty horrific decisions. And yeah. stuff. but when you're looking at state-sponsored um, executions, that's a level I think that I think we can all agree is a little bit too far. So it's difficult, it's, it's awful. None of the Newcastle fans um, uh, uh, asked for it. They have no say in it. It's, it's sad that the, the, the Premier League and, and the European uh, uh, super clubs have got to that situation where we have to do this, but you know, that, that, that's life. You know, it's big boy school now. But, but even, <laughs> even, even if your owner's not that, You've always got to question the motives mm. because their motives will never be the same as, as, as yours. yours yeah. will, will, will they? Yeah. And I, it's, it's something like it's a discussion that I, I guess we've had a lot around Wimbledon recently. Because mm. I, I don't, I don't want to be all pious about how my club's wonderful. My, my club is wonderful, but I, I, I don't want to be all pious about it. But I think an interesting thing because we've had a really quite dreadful season. Yes, since yeah, December yeah. when we've not won at all. It looks, and, and, and teams around you are picking up points, and it's it's you'll probably go down. Right, you don't need to rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 the fact is, when the team's doing badly on the pitch, you'll have this discussion at the bar mm. and message boards and stuff, and people are going, "Well, how far can we go with like a, a fan run model?" And you know, if if we're gonna if we're gonna not struggle in League One, we need to sell the club and all that sort of stuff. And it's mm. like, what are you? Talking about, yeah. we've got something like so precious and so and, rare. You know, it, it, the fact that we're in this new stadium that the fans built with our own money, yeah, should be like, really proof that it all works. And what a story! You know, like what a story for that. It's club. amazing. It's, it's 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 amazing, and it is the proof that can, I still think as fans, like not just Wimbledon fans, as football fans, 
we underrate ourselves mm. and what we can do. It, it can be a really, really beautiful thing, but when you're, <laughs> when you're constantly sort of going, well, we, we're never going to, unless we have a better right back, unless, unless you have this better right back <laughs> or, a, or, or, or a couple of goals on the side, and that means sort of doing a deal with the devil, like, have a bit of goddamn self self awareness I suppose and self respect I suppose you can't just and, and I said this at the, at the turn of the Newcastle takeover like you don't like it's happened you have you had no say in it it's not an ideal situation it sucks it makes me fall out of love of my club a little bit but you can be better and you can sort of look to the positives of your club so what's next in store for the game we love and how do we protect it in the immediate term Rory Jennings certainly isn't hopeful when they rode back on it they was forgiven and I hope I'm wrong here. I really do. But I'm beginning to see the seeds of things. You know the, the way that the Champions League has changed, for example. Yeah. I'm wondering if we are going to get, via stealth, a sort of delivered by ninja. We don't realise it, but it's actually landing. A Super League under a different guise. The so-called Swiss model of the Champions League will come into effect in 2024. All 36 teams in a single league, all guaranteed at least 10 games with, at the time of recording, two places potentially left aside for teams with the best historical performance that have missed out on qualification. It all sounds eerily familiar. And as we heard in episode one, it is just another in a long line of concessions UEFA have made down the years to ward off the Super League, but without driving away the money pouring into the sport. We, we've forgotten the reason why football exists sometimes. It's, it's um, almost entirely driven by business. And I'm not um, naive enough to think it will never be because it is the world we live in. It is a, it is a, a, a big industry. Um, but why it was there, the kind of social importance of, of the game, the, the need for it to be competitive as possible. That will also help the business part as well, I, I would have thought, because at the end of the day, you, you risk making the whole spectacle extremely dull. Arguably, it is in some ways where you kind of have this, this repetition and almost guarantee of what's to come at the start of the season. That that shouldn't be it shouldn't be that predictable. And you know, I think it was really telling that last season's semi finalists of the Champions League were the two petrol clubs, UA, um, Manchester City and, and, and Paris Saint Germain, the oligarch then on <laughs> oligarch owned club Chelsea, um, and Real Madrid, and and that that I guess isn't the the image that UEFA or, or, or the people who look after football want, that this is the future of football. But in the current climate, what UEFA wants doesn't matter. As more and more capital comes into football, it becomes harder to draw a line in the sand. Despite the current karma Arsenal, for instance, Nick Ames isn't in any doubt that their owners, like their Premier League peers, will continue to keep their ears to the ground. I don't think for one moment that if something like this came on, on the table again in a slightly doctored form that they felt might be more acceptable. I don't think for one moment that they wouldn't jump onto it, frankly, because I think last time they went the way the wind was blowing and this time they would do it as well. 
besides Juventus, all these clubs that we're talking about now are, are foreign-owned and owned. What's happened in Serie A in recent years is indicative of a wider trend in European football. Groups. Certainly, they want to make their money. That's, mm. that's part of the, the decision. It's fascinating to me how many investment groups have got involved in Italian football in the last sort of few years. American investment, not just at the top of the, the, the table, but going down it, which suggests belief in growth even within that context. When we talk about the money league, you can sort of talk about first, tenth, twenty. It's a bit abstract. Mm. But putting real numbers on it, the top teams in the money league, you're looking at revenues of more or less in the last one, I think it was around 600 million euros, a bit more than. Juventus in tenth are on 400 million, right? So it's already a huge difference. You're doing mm. 50% difference in your revenues. Um, Inter around 14th, 15th, somewhere around 300 million euros revenues. Milan just got back into the top uh, 20, 200 million revenues. So you're talking a third of those clubs at the top. Now, some of that is cyclical. Milan hadn't been in the Champions League, so Milan's going to come back up some more now they're in the Champions League. Of course, the most recent Money League numbers take in a year where you haven't had an open stadiums of the pandemic or you've yeah. had different situations in different countries. But th those are the sorts of gaps we're talking about bridging. You know, literally one third the amount of revenue as clubs you're supposed to be competing mm. with. So, of course, if someone comes along and says, no, you get to be part of this private club, and your revenues are going to be maybe not exactly on a par with these teams, but comparable to those teams going forward. If you're an investment group that bought mm. Milan, I can't imagine why you wouldn't entertain that. I can't imagine why that wouldn't sound like a, a interesting prospect to you. More than ever, the game needs stronger governance over and above the desires of these investment groups. For Tarek Panja, there's only one way of doing this. I think UEFA and FIFA, they need to be broken down into constituent parts. UEFA, we're talking about Super League here, so let's stick with UEFA, is got these jobs that are in massive conflict with each other. So on one hand, it is the organiser of two of the world's most popular events, the Champions League and the European Championships, right? But the, the one that I think causes the most conflict, really, is the Champions League because it's organising this best club competition. It wants the best teams in there and it's selling TV rights to this hugely popular competition and sponsorship, trying to raise all this money. On the other hand, it's got this really important function as a governing body responsible for rules, regulations and governance. Now, the governing body and the event organising part of the business seem to be in conflict with each other, I think, because you're asking for your top actors sometimes to be slung out of the competition or to be punished or to have a bad relationship with them because you're going to rule against them. And I think that makes them a little bit kind of um, cautious, overly cautious, when it comes to application of the rules. That tension can be taken away immediately if you just create separate companies a, a, a governance unit that's got nothing to do with with um, what's happening uh, with the sale, sales of the competition and organising this event. You know, these these UEFA um, presidents, for example, they're all uh, and FIFA presidents. They're elected by national governing bodies. There's an enormous amount of politics here. That should be taken out. There can't be politics when it comes to just rulemaking, right? And I think the public don't believe in what they're seeing. And once that happens, 
you have a level of distrust and then you know you risk the long-term risk is people could walk away from the game moving forward you know some of the the solutions would be definite salary caps a proper hard enforcement of financial fair play in in a proper way not the not the loose watered down version that you know has been laughed off by the clubs that can afford to laugh at it the the entire situation you were trying to avoid uh, avoid solidarity payments kill them and and redistribute wealth more evenly and and more expansively honestly we could go on an endless list here but there has to be the willpower and the spine from the people running the game and not just in this country i mean you know all the governing bodies and all the associations to stop being self-serving entities to stop trying to maximize all they can from the game in terms of of money and profits in the uk the initial recommendations of tracy crouch's fan-led review could go some way to achieving at least some of these aims Kevin Miles, chief executive of the Football Supporters Association and who is on the review panel, walked us through it. The key ones for us are the creation of the independent regulator and the statutory powers necessary to regulate the game. That it has a prudential approach towards the finances of the game. That it allows not just the punishment of wrongdoing, of breaking of the rules, but support for clubs who want to run a good business model in order to encourage all clubs to become sustainable. We want to see the uh, creation of that regulator operating a club licensing system where if you're, for a club to get a license to play, it has to be in conformity with all the other requirements of the club license, which allows you to put into the license things that should be second nature, but things about like uh, diversity, um, diversity requirements. But within those uh, club uh, licensing requirements will be the existence of a golden share at the club, which gives a supporters organisation the people I referred to earlier. There will be a shadow board created where the owners and directors of the club have to report to a shadow board, a democratically appointed uh, shadow board of fans, so they're held accountable. There's transparency information about what the business strategy of a club is going forward, that that information has to be shared. They will have to have independent directors as well who can act as a check on the you know, look after the interests of the club as a community asset rather than just as the money-making tool of an owner. You put all those things in together, together with the powers of the regulator to ensure that the wealth in football can be more fra- fairly distributed. The report as a whole, has a, a, you know, enacted together, would provide a lasting and you know, permanent solution to the, some of the threats that exist uh, to English football caused effectively by greed. But we've been here before, haven't we? What we're asking for is fundamental change. And you can bet that that takes a lot longer to achieve than it does to knock up a new Super League logo in Microsoft Paint. Well, I mean, Andy, you, I mean, you, you're talking to the dregs of the people you've uh, interviewed over the past few weeks and months. Like, what... What have you taken from people's answers, responses, and how other people have kind of 
talked about this uh, about this subject. Are you more depressed or more optimistic about how it's all going to go? It's impossible for me not to be optimistic. <laughs> Look, that's I, I why think... I like you, Andy. That's I, I, why I love hanging out with you. It makes I, I me happy. F- football is a long way down the rabbit hole. I don't think there's, there's any doubt about no. that. But there are a lot of rabbit holes, and you could escape out another one. <laughs> exactly. It could be a network of rabbit holes. <laughs> There's definitely a network of rabbit holes. <laughs> We've been all the way across Europe, and I think that that's it. I, I, I do think there has been a realization that people can mobilize, that people can influence things, that fans can yeah. influence things. And I think because elite level European football is, is such big business. Mm. It's easy to feel helpless. Mm. It's easy to feel as if, you know, what you think is is, is not important mm. and it's, it's just going to happen anyway. Well, I think it's been proved that that's not the case. Everyone has got a voice mm. if, that, if they can find it. Yeah. And everyone finding their voice made a huge difference to, to this story. Mm. And, you know, it's maybe it's not quite the ending but it's had a, a different denouement than it mm. than it might have done if if people hadn't stood up and, and and said what they thought and and done it quickly decisively and eloquently football fans need to remember that they can use bed sheets for other things other than my manager out <laughs> write something else on the bed sheet <laughs> if you're gonna ruin a bed sheet make it bigger than football Make it, make it political. Yeah, stick a stencil of Atem Ben Arthur with, with the Che Guevara hat on. That's the most important thing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Back From The Brink on Football Ramble Presents. If you enjoyed the series, please leave us a review wherever you're listening and share your thoughts with us on our socials at Football Ramble. Football Ramble Presents is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.